Gresham College presents Theatre in the Family Anton Chekhov, The Cherry Orchard by Professor Belinda Jack So, good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome and thank you very much for coming um, I'm delighted to see some familiar faces um, in particular from my last lecture um, which was on Ibsen's Doll's House and this evening's lecture is something of a companion piece um, we've been listening to Tchaikovsky, uh, his life overlaps, of course, um, with Chekhov's, um, but he's a, a late romantic, and one of the interesting things about Chekhov's brief writing career um, is that he moves from a kind of naturalism, realism, through to something more like symbolism. So if there's time at the end, um, we'll also hear some Stravinsky from the Rite of Spring, um, which is in marked contrast to the Tchaikovsky that we've been listening to. Now, The Cherry Orchard um, is a remarkable play, and it poses two particularly intriguing questions, I think. And the first one is, how does it hold our attention, given that there's so very little action? And the second is, is it really a comedy? as the playwright himself insisted it was. Now, Jean-Louis Barrault, um, the French actor and director, he directed a wonderful uh, performance of The Cherry Orchard. Uh, he describes the, the action or inaction of The Cherry Orchard in the following way. He said, in Act One, the cherry orchard is in danger of being sold. In Act 2, it is on the verge of being sold. In Act 3, it is sold. And in Act 4, it has been sold. <laughs> well, thus described, the play is clearly devoid of what we normally think of as dramatic action. And the felling of the orchard, which is arguably the dramatic climax of the play, takes place off stage. We only hear the acts as it meets the trunk of the first cherry tree as it's felled. So how could the scenario described by Barreau um, be construed as comic? It's certainly often staged um, as a tragedy. Now, many of you will know the play. In fact, it'd be quite interesting to know how many people here know the play. Could you put your hand up if you do know the play? So the vast, vast majority. Um, so I'll just um, describe it very briefly then for those of you who don't know it. And this is a slightly fuller description than Barrow's. <laughs> so the play opens at first light in the nursery of a rural home in Russia. And Gaev, who is Ranyevskaya's brother, Baria, who is her adopted daughter, we never learn in what circumstances she was adopted. And Pishchik, who is a neighbouring landowner, they've all gone to the station to meet Ranyevskaya, who is the protagonist of the play, the heroine or anti-heroine. And she's returning from five years abroad in Monton and Paris. The trip was motivated by a double bereavement. She lost her husband and her seven-year-old son drowned. Her Russian lover followed her to France. Um, they lived on the proceeds of the sale of the Montan estate, um, and he spent most of her money and then abandoned her. 
So she is now broke, and Anya, her daughter, and her daughter's very eccentric governess, Charlotta, um, you'll hear her and see her in a moment, um, telling everyone that her, that her dog eats nuts, um, which is a sign of her eccentricity. Um, they've travelled to Paris to bring her home. Now, in, uh, in her absence, in Ramyaskaya's absence, the estate has been poorly managed by her feckless um, brother, Gaev. And he has a passion for billiards and boiled sweets. And throughout the play, you see him practicing shots in the air in an extraordinary way. Um, but these two things, his billiards and his, um, his desire for sweets, comes to symbolize his infantilism. This is a man who hasn't grown up. He enjoys play and he enjoys sucking sweets, which he often resorts to when he feels emotional. For example, he starts sucking one immediately after announcing that the nurse has died while Ranievskaya was in France. Now, Freud, of course, suggested that there were five stages of human development, the first one being oral. And according to Freud's scheme, anyway, Gaev is clearly stuck in the first. So the extended family re-congregates at the family estate, which includes the large and famous cherry orchard. And the estate is about to be auctioned to pay off the mortgage. Now, the family's presented with various business plans, various schemes, including felling the orchard in order to build holiday homes. But the family turns in on itself and reminisces and essentially does nothing until it's too late. And the play ends with the sale of the estate to the son of a former serf, and the family leaves, hearing the sound of the cherry orchard um, as the felling begins. And one of the quirks of the ending of the play, you'll remember, is that Furs, the old um, manservant, the ancient manservant, um, the family thinks he's been taken into hospital, but actually he's still in the house, and he gets locked in at the end of the play. So, in one sense, the play is about the futile attempts or paralysis of the aristocracy to maintain its status. While exploring the socioeconomic factors at work in Russia at the turn of the 20th century, including the rise of the middle class and the abolition of serfdom in the middle of the 19th century, the play replicates changes going on elsewhere in the world. It was first staged in 1904 in the Moscow Art Theatre. Um, these were its new premises, just moved there, and they're still there today. Chekhov was terminally ill and struggling to work at all. And in the circumstances, it's perhaps surprising that Chekhov had written The Cherry Orchard written that the cherry orchard was, and I quote, a comedy, even in places, a farce. I think just having seen the, that clip from the BBC production, it's quite hard to see the comedy in it. Um, that said, of course, quite a lot of comic writers suffered from melancholia, and I'm thinking of Edward Lear, um, who suffered very badly from depression, but who wrote his wonderful nonsense poetry, um, including The Owl and the Pussycat, most famously. And in fact, Charlotta recites a nonsense poem in Act Two of The Cherry Orchard. The producer of the first 
um, performance was Stanislavski, 1863 to 1938, an actor and celebrated and innovative theatre director. And the Stanislavski system, his method of, of acting, inspired acting teachers around the world, um, both in terms of stage and screen, particularly after the Second World War. Stanislavski treated theatre-making as a very rigorous discipline requiring self-analysis and self-reflection. And in an interesting inversion, his theory of acting stressed practice as a mode of inquiry and theory as a stimulus to creative development. And he's generally considered one of the great theatre practitioners um, of the 20th century. And the creative partnership, and it was an extremely fraught one between Stanislavski and Chekhov, um, was such that it's really unimaginable, I think, to consider a producer staging the cherry orchard without, uh, today that is, without considering um, the Stanislavski method. Now, Stanislavski and the original cast, when they did their first read-through of the play, were moved to tears. And Stanislavski insisted that Chekhov hadn't understood the play. He just hadn't <laughs> understood what he'd written. It was, he insisted, a tragedy. Now, in writing the play, it had actually changed quite a bit. But Chekhov continued to insist that it was a vaudeville. On the title of the, the title page of the published play, he described it, designated it a comedy. And in contemporary correspondence, he referred to it as, and I quote, not a drama, but a comedy, in places even a farce. The last act will be cheerful. In fact, the whole play will be cheerful and frivolous. But Stanislavski was not wholly convinced. It's not a comedy. It's not a farce. It's a tragedy. I wept like a woman. I tried to stop myself, but I couldn't. I can hear you saying, excuse me, but it is a farce. No, for the plain man, it is a tragedy. So who was right? The playwright or the producer? Well, as I stressed in my last lecture on Ibsen's Doll's House, I think we need to distinguish very carefully between a play, that is the written published document, and theater. And the play, I think, can be produced to emphasize its more tragic dimension, or it can be brought to life as a wonderfully comic event, albeit one tinged with a, a, an element, perhaps, of tragicomedy. Now, in order to consider how the play can be made to emphasize this comic dimension, I think it's worth considering some theories of what constitutes the comic. Um, philosophers have had remarkably little to say about humor, um, from ancient times on, the most famous philosophers have rarely produced more than a brief essay. Um, major philosophers like Plato and Hobbes and Kant only write about humour uh, when they're writing about other things as a kind of aside. Only a few lesser-known 18th-century philosophers, um, Francis Hutchinson, um, who was an Ulster-born Scots Presbyterian minister, and writer, and James Beattie, a Scottish poet, um, philosopher, moralist, 
um, wrote more than just brief essays. Um, James Beattie should not be confused with the um, footballer. So back to humour. Well, the word wasn't used in its current sense of funniness um, until the 18th century. Before that, it was more to do with one's disposition. Um, and so earlier discussions were about laughter and comedy. And the French theorist Henri Bergson um, published a very important work in 1900, which is really the first serious consideration of what comedy is and its importance in human life. So he wrote Le Rire, Essai sur la signification du comique, Laughter, an essay on the meaning of the comic. Bergson, whose dates 1859 to 1941, so again overlaps with Chekhov, um, was a major proponent of the theory known as the incongruity theory of humour which built on the work of James Beattie um, and, to a lesser extent, on work by Kant, Schopenhauer and Kierkegaard, um, although he doesn't draw directly because they're talking about other aspects of human behaviour. Um, it's really become the dominant theory of humour for philosophers and psychologists. But other, there are two other theories that I think are worth a brief mention. One is the superiority theory, and the other is the relief theory. Now, the former accounts for humour's bad reputation, as it asserts that we laugh at the misfortunes of others, as it gives us a satisfying sense of superiority. And this theory can be traced back to Plato, Aristotle, and Hobbes. In the Christian tradition, humour is inextricably linked with mockery, which is deemed uncharitable. The relief theory, on the other hand, claims that laughter is a homo homeostatic mechanism, it balances, as, a, as it were, that reduces psychological tension caused, for example, by fear. Well, it was Bergson who rescued humour from its rather despised image. Uh, he was a major French philosopher of the first half of the 20th century, and he convinced many thinkers that the process of immediate experience and intuition are more important than abstract rationalism or science for our understanding of reality. And in Laughter, an essay on the meaning of the comic, he developed a theory not so much of laughter itself, but of what provokes laughter. He describes laughter, particularly that excited by clowns and comics, as a caricature of what he calls the mechanism nature of humans as manifest in habits, in automatic acts, in repeated acts. And this is one of Bergson's two propensities of life at opposite ends of this spectrum of human behaviour. So at one end, there's degradation towards inert matter and mechanism. Um, so in a sense, a kind of death which is manifest in repeated actions, that all imagination thought has gone, it's just... Uh, humans as automata. And on the other end of the scale, he talks about the continual creation of new forms. So one interpretation of the play as text, which brings out its comic dimension, is that the characters fail to act in a flexible way. They behave in a mechanistic way. They remain insensitive to the context in which they 
find themselves and go on living just as they've always lived, taking no account of the changed circumstances. They can't give up their comfortable habits and they're apparently blind to the dramatically changed circumstances in which they find themselves. Ranievskaya and Gaev refuse to adapt to the inevitable. And this is, in effect, infantile behaviour. They lack adult perspective. They lack an adult sense of responsibility. They, they lack what we might call coping strategies. And this makes them laughable. Now, of course, you could say that the comedy in the play arises out of our feelings of superiority. Um, Trofimov, who is the eternal student, um, the sort of socialist revolutionary, um, who is in love but never seems to be able to get anywhere with the, the whole business, um, at one point he actually declares, I am above love. <laughs> um, he takes things to an absurd and exaggerated extreme, rather like a stubborn child unwilling to lose an argument. So what I'd like to suggest is that there's an ambiguity and subtlety about the potential for generating a sense of superiority that means that other feelings are aroused in, in the audience, those of empathy. Um, Bergson, this is a quotation from laughter, something mechanical encrusted on the living causes laughter. I think we can see how the characters in the cherry orchard um, have this mechanical uh, influence on them. Um, and instead of adjusting and being flexible and adapting, they just carry on as before. We recognize that the character's behavior is inappropriate in terms of their age and in terms of the relationships that they're in. But we also recognize our own behavior in this. Um, take the early scene when Ranievskaya announces her happiness seeing her nursery again after her years in France. And she says, the nursery, my own dear room, my lovely room. I slept in it here when I was a little girl. And then she weeps. And now I'm a little girl again. She kisses her brother, then Varya, then her brother once more. And Varya's just the same as before. She looks like a nun. And Dunyasha, I recognize. And then she kisses her again. Um, and her delight in being back in her childhood nursery has a kind of almost intoxicating effect. Um, and a little later she says, is this really me sitting here? I feel like leaping in the air and waving my arms about. Then she covers her face with her hands. Perhaps it's all a dream. Oh, but I love my country. God knows I do. I love it tenderly. I couldn't look out of the carriage window. I did nothing but weep. However, the coffee has to be drunk. Thank you, Furs. Thank you, my dear. I'm so glad that you're still alive. We may laugh at the characters in the play, but their willingness to behave ridiculously forces us to recognize fellow feeling. Now, Barrault's description of the play is deliberately droll, uh, even ironic. In one sense, the play is devoid of drama, but another, it's charged with psychological and emotional drama. And this, as he knew very well, arises not as a function of action, but rather as a function of the non-action that results from a particular set of relationships 
at a particular moment in Russian history, sometime after the emancipation of the serfs, which Furs, the old retainer, regards as a tragedy. Freedom, albeit of a very limited sort, was given to the peasantry in 1861, the year after Chekhov was born. And it's interesting that in his short stories, he's really interested above all in the poor and the disenfranchised. But in his plays, his interest is in the impoverished gentry um, living in their dilapidated country estates. And I'd like now to consider the role of the family, um, looking at, um, in my last lecture, we were looking very much at the, the doll's house, a doll's house in relation to the individual. This play is very much about the social group. And I'd like to think about the family in relation to Bergson's idea of humour resulting from inflexibility. So the family is a social unit that actually allows for an exploration of a large number of important correlatives of related subjects, those of legitimacy and illegitimacy. Might Varya, Ranyevskaya's adopted daughter, be an illegitimate daughter um, by Ranyevskaya's um, drunken first husband? The family also lets us consider questions of heredity, do we see parallels in the behavior of Yanyevskaya and her brother Gaev? Of course, this is all around, you know, this is all in the wake of Darwin and new um, theories. Um, the family estate um, obviously represents accumulate, accumulated capital and it represents social status. The family also allows for an exploration of the generations, and these intersect with class. The old-fashioned servant, Furs, treats Gaev, his master, as though he was a child. And this is a reversal of the patriarchal traditions of early Russian literature, where the landowner, of course, um, was depicted as the father, and the servants as his children. Um, in this play, that's been reversed. And in his final speech of the play, um, he says, and this is in one translation, not that of the clip we've seen, when will these young people learn? And of course, both Gaev and Ranyevskaya are in late middle age. The play begins and ends in the nursery, and this is arguably the heart of the home where children, mothers, and sometimes fathers and servants meet. And it's the existence of the extended family and the mutual support that it provides that accounts to some extent for the fact that the characters have failed to grow up. They can all rely on each other within this very closed social group. And Russian writers have had interesting things to say about childhood and um, delayed development. Um, some of you will know the American sitcom Arrested Development, which is about an American family that was once very wealthy and is now impoverished and which is also dysfunctional. Um, and I think arrested development is to some degree a 21st century take um, on the cherry orchard. Tolstoy um, claimed, and I quote, one of the chief causes of the faults of our upper classes is the fact that it takes us so long to get accustomed to the thought that we are grown up. Our entire life till the age of 25 and sometimes even older, contradicts this thought. 
And Pushkin wrote something not dissimilar. And I quote, only the fool does not change, insists Pushkin, for time does not bring him any development. Any experience does not exist for him. And the critic Svetlan Evdokimova makes the following astute observation. The timeless harmony of the nursery, as it is portrayed in Tolstoy, grows into an alarming symbol of human infantilism and the inability to confront reality, the reality of historical as opposed to cyclic time, the reality of change as opposed to the eternal return. It's hardly a coincidence that all three major characters in the play, the eternal sucking Gaev with his boiled sweets, the eternal student Trovimov, the revolutionary, and the eternal suitor, Lupakin, who of course ends up buying the estate, um, but he's always on the verge of making a marriage proposal, but he never gets round to it. Now, all three of these major male figures are unmarried and have no children. So as different as they may be, they all cling to their puerile identities and refuse to confront the demands of adult age. And although Lupakin is arguably the only realistic and adult character who warns his friends about the need to confront change and face up to change, his purchase of the estate um, is also um, something which reveals his fixation on childhood. He buys the cherry orchard neither for aesthetic reasons, not because he thinks it's the most beautiful, beautiful place, um, nor does he really buy it for practical reasons. He buys it to overcome his traumatic and deprived childhood, um, impoverished childhood, and to resolve his Oedipus complex. It's to the male dominating, domineering figures of his father and grandfather that he ultimately addresses his drunken speech on the purchase of the estate, um, and this, this is from a production in Beijing in 2014 um, where there was a sort of huge amount of cherries, plastic cherries, spilled across to show his capitalist wealth and so on. Um, but he makes a rather extraordinary speech. Um, the cherry orchard's mine now, mine. And he laughs. Lord, my God, the cherry orchard is mine. And he stamps his feet. Don't laugh at me. If my father and my grandfather could rise from their graves and see everything that has happened, how their yamole, their often flogged and half-literate yamole, who used to run around bare feet, barefoot in the winter, how that very yamole has bought the most magnificent estate in the world. I bought the estate where my father and grandfather were serfs, where they were not even admitted into the kitchen. I am asleep. I am only daydreaming. I only imagine it. Now here, Lupakin, in his infantile way, considers that he's entered the Garden of Eden, from which the others have now been banished. And as the critic Stephen Bear points out, and I quote, one access of Chekhov's play stresses, at least on the surface, the idea of a Russian paradise lost, 
depicting the fall of the old nobility from their Edenic existence in the Garden of Cherries. In several earlier short stories, Chekhov had ironically compared this estate world of the nobility with the Garden of Eden and introduced motifs of the fall. Some of this irony continues in the cherry orchard where, as we shall see, the paradise of one class is built upon the sweat and toil of another. And it's this more political aspect of the play that the director Howard Davies wanted to focus on in his national theatre production of Andrew Upton's adaptation um, of The Cherry Orchard in 2011. Um, I hope some of you may have seen that. Um, it was a wonderful production, um, but Davies was very um, preoccupied by the political dimension. It, it didn't do very well in, in Chekhov's own lifetime, where well, he died very soon after the first performance. Um, but it is a play that has had extraordinary sort of longevity. Um, for most of Chekhov's life, theatre was a huge frustration and a constant source of, of self-doubt and anguish. Um, he claimed that theatre bored him. Um, at one point, he described it as the venereal disease of the cities. But his struggles, I think, to understand the potential of theatre um, changed theatre um, forever, what it was and, and what it could be. And I think what finally accounts for its, its brilliance um, is the way in which he's able, he was able to master ambiguity and this derives in part from what some critics have called the colourlessness of his language. We understand Chekhov's words, but we don't dwell on them. And his other great skill is that he detached himself so fully from his characters. Um, the critic Magashak has argued, and I quote, in all his plays, Chekhov gives expression to his social and political views by putting them into the mouths of his characters. Um, in a letter that Chekhov wrote to Alexei Pleshchev, um, Pleshchev had spent years in Siberia because of his own um, political activities. Um, Chekhov wrote to him, the people I fear are those who seek to read tendencies into what one writes and who want to see me as straightforwardly liberal or conservative. I'm not a liberal, I'm not a conservative, not a gradualist, not a monk, not an indifferentist. I should like to be a free artist and nothing else, and I regret that God has not given me the power to be one. I hate lies and violence in all its forms, Phariseeism, stupidity, the arbitrariness that reigns not only in jails and merchants' houses. I see them in science, in literature, and among young people. That's why I nourish no particular predilection for security policemen or butchers or scholars or writers, or young people. Signs and labels, I account mere prejudice. My holy of holies is the human body, health, intelligence, talent, inspiration, love, and the most absolute freedom. Freedom from force and lies in whatever form these last two might be expressed. That is the program to which I should adhere were I a major artist. He also argued that the artist must not be the judge of his characters and what they're talking about, but merely an impartial witness. 
I heard a confused conversation resolving nothing between two Russian people about pessimism, and I have to pass on this conversation in the same form in which I heard it. But it will be evaluated by the jury, i.e. the spectators. My job is merely to be talented, i.e. to be able to distinguish important phenomena from unimportant, to be able to illuminate characters and speak with their tongue. Now, part of what Chekhov wanted when he underlined the comic aspect of his plays was also a new style of acting, one that was light and speedy and open to irony, um, as we've heard. He didn't want to convey the hopeless workings of fate, but absurdity, meaninglessness. The former, the workings of fate, would be tragic, and the idealism of tragedy was something which might have struck him as elitist. The people who matter in tragedy are the powerful, the kings and queens and military chiefs. In comedy, on the other hand, there are more characters, and they're often on a par socially, but equally there are more kinds of characters. Women tend to feature more, and many of the principal roles are characters who belong to the lower classes, yet everybody counts. And in comedy, as opposed to tragedy, the language is common speech, not elevated and remote. The basic unit of tragedy is the individual, and in comedy, it's the family or the group. The heroes of tragedy are preoccupied by their predicament, while comic characters are emotionally distanced from real events. In Chekhov, the characters are distanced from real events by their immaturity and childishness. But it's equally their childishness which can make his character so appealing. In The Cherry Orchard, I think Chekhov brilliantly blends comedy with social satire so that we laugh both at and with his characters. We feel a mix of sympathy and frustration towards these eternal youths who won't grow up, who won't face up to things. None of the characters in The Cherry Orchard, including Lopakin, seems capable of growth or development. And this, I think, we can easily read as an allegory of Russia's inability to develop a national selfhood. National nostalgia for an earlier golden age, equated with childhood, a continuing desire for the safety of patriarchal relations, analogous to those in the family, and the comfort of the real extended family, all combine to create an overwhelming sense of what we now call arrested development. But Chekhov's capacity to make us laugh at his character's infantilism encourages us towards growth and an adult sense of responsibility ourselves. As Svetlana Evdokomiva writes, and I quote, by laughing at the character's lack of maturity, we become more mature ourselves, for, as was suggested by Freud in his discussion of the functions of humour, a good sense of humour is an essential component of maturity. Freud, I think, picking up very much on Bergson's idea that maturity and flexibility go together, and a good sense of humour shows that flexibility. Well... I wonder what Chekhov would make of what's going on in the world today and, for example, Putin's involvement in things. He would have deplored the widespread violence and he might have deemed the behaviour 
of many in power as infantile in their shows of belligerence and superiority. And whether or not the superpowers can grow up and make the world a safer and fairer place can only be a matter of speculation. But I think for those of us fortunate enough to see a good production of The Cherry Orchard, we will, I think, go home that little bit wiser, that little bit more grown up. Thank you. For all further information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.